Hallelujah. We are back at Matthew chapter 4, looking at the temptation of Jesus for the second week in a row. Um, we did that because <clears throat> before we look at how we can see Jesus' dealing with temptation and make application in our own life, we have to understand eschatologically what's going on here. This is the Christ undoing what happened in the Garden of Eden as a second Adam in the wilderness is tempted. Uh, in fact, it starts off with what? Tempted to eat, right? To eat food. But to do that which is contrary to uh, Christ, uh, to God's will, and therefore, as a man, he uh, earns a righteousness that can be imputed to us. And so last week we dealt primarily with that, saw that the temptation correlates with the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Adam failed to be righteous, but our Lord was perfectly righteous and earned a righteousness as a human that is imputed to us when we are converted. So in Adam all die, and in Christ all those united to him are made alive. Uh, Jesus also excels in the first Adam in that he was not in a garden where all his needs were fully met, but in a wilderness where he was alone and hungry, and yet, as a God-man, uh, that none of that mattered. He still did what was absolutely right. Jesus was also actually and truly tempted, as all three things were legitimate for him, but none would be according to the will of the Father. He made a choice to love and obey the Father rather than do anything to displease him. And uh, so we spent some time at the end of the message dealing with the idea that somehow that Jesus really couldn't be tempted. And of course that's uh that that would not that is not a righteous righteousness that we need. He was tempted, but you can be tempted without sin. And that's where sometimes we struggle because we don't have that experience. We don't know what it's like to be tempted without sin. These are things that, drew, that Jesus truly needed or were rightly his, but he gladly gave them up for the time that he might do the Father's will. And that, of course, is the essence of righteousness. Not my will, but yours be done. And that's the thing that we need. And that's what is imputed to us when we are saved. And so last week we tried to look at the overarching reason for the temptation as it was the second Adam obeying when the first Adam disobeyed. The first Adam's disobedience brought ruin on all his descendants, and the second Adam brought life by his obedience. We saw that Jesus therefore had to have some nature, and had the same nature as Adam did before he fell, yet because he was also God, there was nothing in him that could do anything contrary to the Father, no matter how much his body might desire it, or his messianic mission might anticipate it. So he had a choice, and he was free as having a human nature, free to do either, but as the God-man, he could only do those things that please the Father. We also saw that Satan tempts to sin, but God uses temptations as trials. And often, uh, especially in uh, our translation, uh, the temptation is used for that which is tempting for evil. Testing is used, the same word, but it is used when the idea is not to sin, but as God does not sin to tempt, or does not tempt us, he sends testings though that we might show that we are faithful to him. 
while it is our desire uh, to pass these tests as we grow in love for the Lord, which is, of course, the essence of our sanctification, Jesus always passed with flying colors, but he did not have to grow in holiness, for he was always perfectly holy, but he did grow in the experience of being human and in the experience of being tempted, something that God cannot be tempted in in and of himself, but the God-man could be tempted, so that he might be able to come to the aid of us, as Hebrews tells us, who are tempted. He was tempted in all the ways we were. He understands what it means. He also, therefore, understands the power that is necessary so that he might help us overcome temptation. And today we want to look at all three temptations in a little bit more detail and try to find some more practical instruction. We find in all three the same things that we face in our trials, temptations in life. And uh, so certainly we would expect uh, to learn something from that. All right. Uh, uh, so... One thing that's important for us to remember is that Satan tried to get Jesus to mistrust God's providential care. These are the three things you might say that we're going to see in these temptations. To trust his providential care, to presume on his providential care, and finally to give himself over to something or someone other than the true God. And that's kind of what all of our temptations are in one way or another. First John talks about how that we uh, have the, the uh, uh, pride. Oh, now I was thinking about that this morning. Someone help me out. The, the pleasures of the flesh. Say that again out loud. Lust of the flesh. Pride, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Yeah. Sorry, I was I was quoting that to myself when I was studying. Of course, I completely forgot it. But uh, one I think speaks to the pleasure. The, the three areas of our temptation are the pleasure. It is uh, things, what we see, the things we want, and then our pride and our power and our position to be seen of others. All those things come into play in all sin, all the temptations that we face. And so Satan is trying to get him to do those things too. And uh, first of all, he says you can make these bread stones if you're the son of God. You're hungry, make these uh, stones into bread. Now, I doubt Satan was trying to cast doubt on who Jesus was when he used the word if. Um, I, I doubt even more that, it, it, that at this point Jesus had any, any doubts about who he was. Satan was probably saying, look, since you are the Son of God, you have the right and power to satisfy your hunger, so why are you hungry? And again, it's a legitimate thing. At, at some point, Jesus does eat. He isn't coming... Satan isn't coming as an enemy in battle, which he seldom does, but as an angel of light pretending to have his good in mind. And, of course, it's not immediately we see how this, and I think this is the first one is this, because it coincides so well with Eve, as Satan comes not as an enemy, but as someone who is going to help you because God is withholding something from you that is good. It is seemingly an innocent advice that seems to be wholly concerned for Jesus' welfare, and that is precisely where the sin lies. Just as with Eve, Satan suggests that the Lord is withholding something 
good for you. And how many times have we faced that where someone says, look, what's wrong with doing this? But the problem was, the problem is that, that we know that it's not uh, God's will for us to do that. And so while it might, it, it seems like it's not going to hurt us, if we're disobeying the Lord, we know just as Eve was told, Adam was told, on the day you do this, you're going to die. Uh, we don't listen to God. We listen to this world. Jesus had come to earth as a man not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father in redemption. As God, his will, of course, was one and the same with the Father. Eating was necessary, and he would eat. But at this time, it was the Father's will that he not eat. And that's what matters. That's all that matters. It's not whether this is in itself going to harm me, or even if it would be doing me good. You know, some, those who are martyred did not look and say, oh, now wait, now all that matters is, will I live or die? And we're going to see this in a moment. No, there's much more to life than whether you live or die, whether you're hungry or not. It is doing the will of God. That's what life is about. And that's what you see in the temptation. Life is about us obeying, doing the Father's will, glorifying Him in everything. Anything short of that is not life. It's not life. It is survival. It, it is living life and it's, as it's not meant to be. It is not our right to seek to be loosed from anything apart from God's will. It's certainly not our right to to be loosed from trials and pain and suffering if it's apart from God's will. Christians have no rights except to love God with all of our heart. That's why we were created. That's all that matters. What only what serves his purposes are legitimate. Now, obviously, eating and having families and all that is part of God's will for us, but all to get us to be used to serve and glorify him and to find our meaning and joy in him. Anything short of that is sin, no matter how legitimate. And so that's the point of that first one. It's legitimate, but it's not at that point. Satan tells us to look around at those sinners out there who are eating well, living well, and saying, why don't you, why aren't you like them? Shouldn't God's children have those things also? Well, where in the Bible does it say that? Is it not telling that the health and wealth gospel uses this very concept in their message? You're the child of the king, so why don't you live like king, God, like the king? God wants you to live as children of the king. Which means you have all you, all your needs supplied. You're never without it, without any, you never have any want. Well, if you want to live like the child of the king, let's start living like the son of the king. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Jesus says in John 16, 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It sounds like Jesus says that in this life, you're not going to have it all. It's something that will be yours, because all things are in Christ, all promises are yea in Christ, but not now. 
Then in uh, Revelation 2.9, for instance, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And remember, this is Jesus speaking. But you are rich. Now, <clears throat> so he's reminding them, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, not tempted, <laughs> tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So it is not God's will for us to live in the full expression of being children of God and having it all now. It is our, His will for us to try to be to suffer that we might shine forth as gold. That's what Jesus says. And see, Satan was saying, you've got a need, you fix it, fill it. Why are you living like this? You're, you're the son of God. <clears throat> and so, what we see here, as we see with Jesus, as we've seen with these passages, our goal is not to stay alive or to uh, always have all of our needs filled, to never be hungry, to never hurt. That's not our goal. We are to stay alive, as the Lord allows. We are to survive as best we can. I mean, that's a given. It's the world we live in. But that's not our primary goal, and that's why the martyrs are martyrs. In this life, a child of the king is not pampered, but served. But serves, excuse me. In the next life, we will be pampered. And we will serve, but... But right now, we are here to serve the Lord. Rightly does Jesus answer with the word of God that teaches us that life is not about keeping this body satisfied, or even alive, if necessary. And that exp- I think that explains life in a nutshell. Man does not live by bread alone. You need food to exist, to survive. But that's not what life is about. You're not living that the lost are not living under the Lord. They're surviving. They have a measure of life. But they're not living as God intended. So, the word of God teaches us that life is not about keeping this body satisfied or even alive. The body must have bread to live, but life is not about staying alive. It is about serving God. Survival is about staying alive, but not the essence of being alive forever, you see. And so, uh, we see here in Matthew 27, verse 40, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, in a sense, that's not dissimilar to what Satan is saying. You're starving to death. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Eat. They're saying, if you are the Son of God. See, they don't, they didn't believe the Son of God could ever be crucified, hang on a tree and be cursed, right? So, save yourself. You said you could rebuild the temple in three days. So come down off the, you know, come down off the cross. What's the deal? Save yourself. Live. Well, there's a problem with all that. 
what is it? This is what it is to follow Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus chose death in that sense uh, as opposed to life. It is precisely because he was the son of God that he had to suffer. This is one of the most ironic statements in all of scripture. If he saved himself, he would be unable to save us. He could have saved himself, but he was there to save us. Being the son of God was not the re- was not a reason not to suffer. Had he decided to not suffer, he would have disqualified himself from being the son of God, certainly from being the savior. And so it's very easy to preach another gospel while claiming to preach the gospel itself. You can preach about the cross and miss it entirely. Those who say that the cross, as Jesus set an example for us, have missed the whole point of the cross. They're, they're preaching the cross, and they've missed the point of the cross. And so this reminds us of being careful of not maintaining our spiritual life and duties by the excuse that, well, I've got to make a living. I've got to eat. Well, no, you don't have to eat. Now, the Lord will provide as we dealt with Sunday school. We saw a great example how the Lord takes care of his own. But you know, he doesn't have to because, you know, you're going to die sometime. So like we say, you know, life is not just about making a living. Yes, we are to make a living. But life, if life is about serving the Lord, then we must spend time in church, spend time in the word. We must develop our spiritual lives because that's what life is about along with in this life living and eating and having what we need to stay alive in the flesh. I By saying I have to make bread even if it means that I give little interest or attention to my God or to the souls of my family is to exist but not live. I don't know if I've told you a story, but early on when I was in New York, uh, when I took the pastor there, there was a woman who was pretty, who came, she was uh, pretty faithful. But we noticed that her husband never came, and her husband was a member of the church. And so I, you know, I got one of the deacons, one of the elders, and I went over there to visit him, you know, find out what's going on. And he said, well, you know, pastor, he said, I I just, uh, Sunday's really my only day to get anything done around the house. And, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm putting on this addition to the house, and Sunday's the only day I can do that. And so I asked him, uh, do you think when you stand before the Lord someday, and, you know, he wants to know why he haven't never went to church, that you say, well, I was busy building the house and monkeying around the yard or whatever nonsense you're doing. I didn't say that, but that he's going to accept that. And he'll look me right in the eye and say, yeah, I think he'll be okay with that. Well, we removed him from the church membership, and his wife convened and said, "Well, you know, I, I, I can't go here either. They couldn't move my husband, so yeah, just as well." But this is the problem. It's not Jesus says, "Take up, you know, take up your cross and follow me." At the heart of this is to doubt God's word, just like they did in the garden. If God told Adam that he could be happy without eating the fruit, then that should have been enough. And because he's telling us, you can be happy without a lot of money. You can be happy and be in poor health. You can be happy and be alone. You can be happy and lose your spouse in death. You can be happy and lose your child in death. 
You can, having me is enough. That's life. For Jesus, it was enough to heed God's word. Just like he told Satan, I'm, I'm doing, the, I'm here to do the Father's will. The temptation was not just for Jesus to misuse his powers in making this, the stones bread. It was to live, uh, it was not to live apart from God. Since all three temptations were nullified by the word of God, he demonstrates that the word is our life. From it is the issues of life. It explains life to us. It guides us. Following it, following it will get us where we need to be. Not following Satan. Or, and, and let's just say Satan doesn't appear to us, but all of a sudden our stomach gets hungry. Our flesh starts to desire something. Life is not saying, okay, what can I do to, to satisfy that, that thirst, that hunger, that pleasure, that, that uh, lust, whatever. It is checking with God. God, what would you have me do so that we might funnel it in the right direction? Notice Deuteronomy 32:46. He said to them, instill in your mind all the things I am testifying to you today, things you must command your children to observe, all the words of this law, for this is no idle word for you, it is your life. See, this is, this is what separates the, the, the true saint from so many of the professing Christians out there. We believe this is our life. We don't say this is a, this is our, uh, you know, guide for life. This is our, uh, you know, God's love letter to us. Now, it is all that. But we take it seriously as the inspired word of God. This is what it is to live. Not, we live like we want to and we go to the word to find some Daily devotions. It is your life. By this word you will live a long time in the land you are about to cross the Jordan River to possess. If you want to live rightly, you've got to know the word of God. You've got to obey the word of God. You've got to follow the word of God. It is your life. It is how you live. It explains to you what life is all about. And so it's not hard to see how this correlates with Eve's temptation. Life certainly includes physical existence and eating fruit, but it also involves much more. Life has a spiritual dimension, which transcends the physical dimension because it's what will continue. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam that in the day he and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit of the tree of life, of the knowledge of good and evil, that should be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. They did eat. Now they continued to live physically, although we know they began to die physically for many years. But the death that they first experienced was spiritual death. They died. And, and there are skeptics out there who say, well, you know, they didn't really die. So God lied to them. I, I heard a, a woman preacher not too long ago say that uh, Satan was really the one telling them the truth in the garden. I, and I use the word preacher lightly. And that uh, because when God said they died, they didn't die. Well, see, that's a dead person trying to explain life to people. They did die. Because once you are separated from God, you are separated from life. They died. They really died. Literally died. 
spiritually, and 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 death, and physical death was a sure thing at that point. It's nonsense. Sit there and say that Satan was telling the truth. It shows exactly where she is. Life is much more than mere physical survival. It is the living in fellowship with God. And Jesus knew that to eat now would result in death. And so he says, nope, not interested. And you think about Esau, it was a very similar thing. How many of you men, if you're like me, you know, you, you walk in the kitchen and say, I'm starving. Honey, I'm famished. I got to eat. And she looks at me with her condescending look. And you're not about to starve. And supper will be served when it's done. You know, that type of thing. Esau comes in that very same thing, right? He, I'm starving. I've got to have something now. And he says, you know, that's more important to me than uh, my connection to the inheritance of the Messiah. And he passes off into history with that. And we, that's what Satan is asking Jesus to do. And that's what he asks us to do all the time. Live for the now and give up eternity. Well, the second temptation is throw yourself off the pinnacle of the, tape, of the temple. It is reported that from one part of the temple to the valley floor at one place it was 450 feet. I, you know, that's just what I've heard. And again, the idea is not to prove whether you are the, the son of God, as he, as he says here. It's a little bit more sinister than that. He's not just asking Jesus to prove who he is. Because in a sense it would. I mean, it would, well, I don't think it would prove anything because Jesus did much greater things than that and didn't help, right? Satan says, I know the Bible also. You're going to quote the Bible to me. I know the Bible. And so let me interpret it to suit my needs rather than obeying God. It is strikingly similar to the first one in that it has at the heart a legitimate need that is expected to be met. Because the Bible did say that the the father was going to take care of the son and that he would not be hurt until, you know, apart from his will. And so it was, it was, uh, that, that's, that much was true. The Father had promised to take care of Jesus and even to send angels to deliver him lest he did dash his stone on the, his, his foot on the stone. So what Satan is saying is let's create a need to help God be God. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself off of here and prove it to everybody. Let, let God demonstrate his power. If you won't use your power to help yourself, um, use God's power. Excuse me. If you won't use your power to help yourself, let's use God's power. If you won't take the initiative, demand that God takes the initiative. So it's to put your will over God's will. See, that's the problem. That's when, when Jesus says you shall not tempt the Lord your God, is you're, you're tempting God. You're trying to make God do your will instead of allowing God to help you do his will. And if you think about it, that is not living by the word either. It's using the word, but it's a misuse of the word. It's to use the word not to do God's will. It's to use the word to do your will. It's idolatry. It's subtle idolatry because it feigns worship and obedience. But it's actually calling on God to serve your interests. That's what tempting God is. And we do that all the time. And we're certainly tempted to do it. I'm going to, what he's saying is, I'm going to, to demand that God glorify himself. 
That's what the health and wealth gospel do all the time. And there, that's, I know that's picking on low hanging fruit, the health and wealth gospel. But it's so obvious. It is to say, uh, you need a new car. Don't you settle for, you know, a Chevy. Ask God to give you a Cadillac. It's tempting God. Let him do your will. I believe God is powerful, a powerful genie, so let me do whatever I can so that he can show off his might. But it's to make me look good, of course. Now it's, and again, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy to remind us that God is not the one to be tested. We are the ones to be tested. God is the one who determines how we live, not our desires or whatever weird thought that enters our mind. And we have many of them, no doubt. So let's be clear, if we live like this, we will at the same time have many opportunities to glorify the Lord's power. In other words, if we live not to do our will, but to do his will, we will have opportunity to demonstrate our God, but according to his will. And it will be through usually suffering, because the world doesn't need to see us uh, healthy and wealthy, and doing great, as if somehow we're going to attract them to Jesus because our marriages are great and our bank accounts are full and that we don't have any problems. God saves through the preacher of the gospel. So it'll be done his way, not by us running around feeding our flesh, doing our will. It will be by us worshiping God, not ourselves. It will bring the scorn of the world because that's not as fun as a genie God that does what we want him to do. And I think another thing Jesus teaches in passing is not only that we can trust God's word, but we must interpret it in its overall context. In other words, Satan accurately quotes the Bible, but he doesn't quote it in its context. He misuses it. In this case, the nature and promises of God are to be used to make us faithful servants. We aren't to turn... If they are not there to turn us loose to sit on the throne. So, you know, God saying that I'm going to meet, I will meet all your needs doesn't mean, as again, many interpret it, is that whatever I want, God will give it to me. <clears throat> if God has said he will take care of you, Satan says, then let's test him. Let's see if he will. By coming up with our own little plan, living life the way we want to. But do you see how that puts you in the judgment seat, just like Satan got Adam and Eve to sit in judgment on what God had said? And so these temptations correlate so well with what happened in the garden. And then, of course, another thing to remember is that miracles don't regenerate hearts. As I kind of already alluded to this, Jesus falling off the temple and being... Uh, and, and a bunch of angels coming and stopping him from hurting himself doesn't save anybody. Because that's not how, he, uh, re, that doesn't regenerate hearts. To demand visible signs is not evidence of faith, but doubt. God has not called us to go out and do flashy things. He's called us to live godly in Christ Jesus. Again, that which brings scorn, not an admiration from the world. Jesus was called to present himself as the Messiah, but he was told to do so God's way, not his own way. Jesus did plenty of miracles, but they were of a different nature. They were signs to unbelievers so that they could, would be judged and they would have no excuse. 
They didn't regenerate anybody. They didn't save anybody. They didn't convince somebody to all of a sudden become a believer. We saw that in John 6 where he fed the 5,000 and people, you know, run around the lake to be with them because they want to see more. Well, Jesus says, you just, you're just doing this because you want your bellies full. You don't believe in me. So let's not make the mistake of thinking that obeying the clear teaching is the same as testing God. If I refuse, let me, let me say that a little bit differently. We, we want to make, we don't want to make the mistake that, uh, when we're, we're dealing with testing God, that it is okay to obey the clear teaching of scripture, and that's not the same thing as testing the Lord. In other words, if I refuse a job, like say, um, there's a job that I could get, but it would cause me to compromise my faith. And I refuse it because of that. I'm not tempting God. I'm not saying, well, God, you've got to take care of me. I have refused my job. That's different than saying, I'm not going to get a job and let God take care of me. See the difference? In one case, I'm obeying the Lord by refusing that job. In the other case, is I'm not going to work because I'm a lazy, good-for-nothing slob, and I'm just going to let God take care of me. Yeah, that's totally different. So we don't want to make that mistake. In the one case, it's doing something that God can do that you want Him to do. In, in the example of, that I gave, you believe that God, what God has said about Himself, and so you trust Him to take care of you as you obey Him, which means in this case you wouldn't take that job. So in other words, God tests us as He tests Christ to see if we love Him above all else. And this is um, His right as God. It's not our right to test God. To make him jump through our hoops to prove himself to us. And so at the heart of all this is who's in charge. So he has not promised that if we spend um, what we don't have, he will pay our bills. That's, te- that's tempting God. That- that's disobeying the Lord, expecting him to show himself mighty. He has not said that if we live unhealthily, he will make sure that we are healthy and strong. No. Not going to do it. That's tempting God. What it is saying is that we can put our lives at risk when we have to obey Him and honor Him, and He will make sure that that turns out for good. God's will was for Jesus to place His life in His hands at the cross, not by throwing Himself off the temple. Jesus had no part of Satan's temptation. And He's showing us that He and the Father are one in a will. They have one purpose and one will, and they will not act independently of each other. And if we want to be like Christ, that's what we will be. I will not, I don't want my will to be contrary to the will of God. So in the first temptation, Satan is saying that God is remote, and you must act on your own. God has not given you what you need, so you need to take charge. Here, because God is near, let's use him. And both of those are wrong. And then lastly, worship me. Satan kind of quits the subtle temptation here and gets to the point that he's been after really the whole time. Uh, in reality, it lets us know that in, in all three of these, the, the, 
even the other two, the reality is just is pretty much the same thing. Who are you going to worship? Who's going to be the God? Again, notice that Jesus had been in, indeed been sent to have a kingdom, but who would rule this kingdom? Who is the kingdom for? How would the kingdom be attained? On the one hand, we are given a lesson in what the, uh, this kingdom that he has been preaching about is not. It is not a kingdom in which you are the king. Next, in the, starting next uh, uh, chapter five, we'll see what the kingdom is. Uh, in the Beatitudes and in the, the Sermon on the Mount. So we need to remember that the whole point here is to get Jesus to sin. It was to get him to put his will above God's, which is what led to the fall. And of course, that's what temptation is for us. It is to get us to not trust the Lord. To doubt his word. But, it, but it's more than that. It's to get us to not be satisfied with the Lord. To not find our joy in the Lord. To need something else to be happy. All that is the same thing. It's all, of course, sin. <laughs> On Jesus' side, his purpose was to gladly and lovingly put God's will first. And had Satan won, but got Jesus to sin, Jesus would have been disqualified to receive the kingdom because that's why he came. He had to live a righteous life and die and be raised again so that he could receive the kingdom, as we've talked about. And to sin would have disqualified the whole thing. Just like when Adam fell, he was disqualified to live, but only suffer God's judgment. And so the same would have been true of Christ. Sin and Satan give the opposite of what they promise. That's always something to remember, that no matter what the world says about sin, it never will live up to what it says it will. And when you, I, I, when you're young, you don't really get that as well. It, it's more theory. When you get to be, uh, our age, my age, even though you still struggle with it, the concepts, you, you, you've been around long enough to know that, yeah, you know, no, it never really gives promises and it lives up to what they say it's going to be. And it's, you, you, you can at least understand it better. So there would be no kingdom without the cross, and anyone who tries to get us to come to God apart from the cross has already followed the lie of Satan. The whole Old Testament is full of bloody sacrifices, and is that all for naught? No. The Old Testament makes it very clear, something, some lamb has to die if there's going to be a remission of sins. God didn't just do all that for the fun of it. If there's anything doctrine taught in Scripture, that cannot be missed, it is that Jesus had to die for our sins, not to be king apart from the cross. And so ne- and next to that doctrine, the fact that Jesus is alone the king is the next most, I think, most obvious doctrine. He's king, not Satan. And Satan's way is to make us think that we are the kings. But of course, as we've seen, that only leads to death and misery. And so, sin and Satan's way says, don't set your standards too high. Cut corners if you want. Don't feel you have to obey the Bible all the time. Do what you want. You'll still get to heaven. See, uh, Jesus, you can, you can get, you can have this kingdom, but in a much easier way. Just worship me. Don't be too faithful. Have a good time. Don't be too fanatical. 
Don't be too committed. Don't make Christ Lord just yet. Just be a good influence on people. That's all that matters. Just don't, you don't have to do it just the way God says. It's more important to be respected and held in good esteem by this world than by Christ and his people. See, that, that's the lies of Satan. And those who sin are like the, their father, the devil, in that they worship, in their worship, they desire to worship themselves. Satan didn't begin this in with, if you are the son of God, because at this point he's kind of, I think, throwing off all pretense. It wouldn't make any sense. What he's asking Jesus at this point is to be his son. When he says, worship me. So he doesn't say, if you are the son of God. He's asking him to be his son because I want you to do what I want you to do. And that helps us understand how Jesus is God's son. It isn't because he was ever begotten. One of the songs we were singing, uh, he's, he wasn't begotten by, uh, he wasn't birthed to become God's son. He was always God's son. He's God's son in that he does what the Father does. Jesus said that I always do those things I see the Father doing. Because in the biblical concept, being a son is to do what the Father does. And that makes you the son. You're in the same line of work. The Father is God and the Son is God. But he's the son in that he obeys the Father. And, and that helps us understand what we are if we are sons of God. We'll get to this in uh, the Beat or in the Sermon on the Mount. But you are a son of God when you do the things that you see the Father doing, because that's what Jesus does. And so, here as we wind up, uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And of course, this took place after the cross. Whose kingdom is it? It says, the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Well, of course, it's both of them. They both sit upon the throne. Nothing denotes that one is, this, uh, both are reigning, uh, Henry, the, I was reading about Henry the Fourth, who left the Protestant Church to become Catholic, so that he could be crowned the King of Paris, uh, or well, be, be crowned the King of France. So he, he was Protestant at the time, and he turns Catholic, because so the Pope would crown him the King of France. And his quote was, "Paris is well worth a mass." Well, here we see someone. Caving where Jesus did not. He was told if you to bow down and worship me, that is the Pope and Catholicism in the world, I will make you the king of France. And he said it's worth it. It's worth bowing down to the Pope to get France. Well, Jesus says, no, it's not worth bowing down to Satan to get something that will be mine anyways. Jesus said, nothing is worth the kingdom of this world. One is perishing and the other is eternal. So Satan's offer at best was temporal. The kingdom he gained, that Jesus gained, through obedience, will last forever. And so with this, Jesus orders Satan to leave. Idolatry will not be tolerated. So it should be pretty clear that we face the same battle, we make the same choices, that this is just a microcosm of 
what it is to live in this world? And the question is, will we do what Jesus did? Will we say, no, I must do all those things, only those things that please the Father? And of course, uh, Joshua, remember his famous words, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Oh, we won't have as much fun on Saturday night that you guys will, and all the high places as we talked about. You know, it was a religion of uh, just wanton sex. But he says, you know what? Someday, uh, this body's not going to need sex. Someday, there's going to be pleasures that, that this body can't uh, enjoy in this life. And I'm going to serve the Lord because I know I'll be much happier in the long run. And so the question God asked, by placing the tree of knowledge in the, of good and evil in the garden, will you put your own God, will you be your own God, or will I be your God? That's what was going on there. And it, but best of all, we are promised the same victory that Jesus uh, has here in uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So in other words, don't, be, don't get too full of yourself. Whatever you th- you're going through that you think nobody else understands that nobody else has ever experienced, you, you're, not, you've, you're not the first and you won't be the last. So just calm down. And think it through and do what God tells you to do and, and say no to those fleeting pleasures that will not give what they promise you. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Because God does not send them to, just to be a temptation, but they are a test. That he wants you to overcome. So we have the same spirit Jesus does. We have we are to love the same way. We have the same word to guide us. And if any one of those three things are missing, we're in trouble. A general familiarity of the Bible would not have helped Jesus and it won't help you. At the center of this is an unfailing love for the Lord, and that can only be grown and strengthened as we understand God's word. And so, of course. This results in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So just like Christ, if we will lose ourselves to the Lord, we will gain the world. But the real eternal world that is to come, not this world that is passing away, that never comes through with what it promises. Putting yourself over God only means you will lose your soul and everything you want. So, just some things to remember with this we're done. Satan's temptations almost always promise us some benefit without really describing the cost. You know, these are things just to keep in mind. When, when you are tempted by something, think it through. You know, if, 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 how many people would, would save their marriages if, if when they, when the temptation to commit adultery is there, if they would say, okay, what's going to happen when we're done? I, 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 my marriage is maybe over. 
my relationship with my uh, spouse is, if not over, will never be the same. You know, my reputation is ruined. You know, all the things that, you know, again, it's not, and it's, we do it because we love the Lord and that's enough. But just think it through for a while. The pri- secondly, the primary incentive is self-service for these temptations. The third temptation's point is that God alone is worthy of worship and obedience. Beware of offers that promise things that God has not promised, like super results, instant results, recognition, importance, no suffering. And that's a good for churches to remember that, because a lot of churches compromise because they feel like, well, other churches have it, why can't we? And then finally, the end doesn't justify the means. And those are just some things to keep in mind, with words to uh, live by, we might say. And uh, I think we will find ourselves doing much better and serving the Lord very well. Any questions or comments?